let's read together the 101st Psalm, uh, a Psalm of David. Eight verses, here's what the precious and errant and fallible word of God says. David says, I, I will sing of loving kindness and justice to you, O Lord. I will sing praises. I will give heed to the blameless way. When will you come to me? I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. No one has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. My eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land. They may dwell with me. He who walks in a blameless way uh, is the one who will minister to me. He who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land so as to cut off from the city of the Lord all those who do iniquity. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, as always, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we come now again to you through the means that you have given in Christ to communicate to you this wonderful means of prayer, this channel, Lord, by which we present our petitions, our praises, our thanks, our confessions to you. And we know that you hear us. You answer our request, Father, in Christ, always in the wisest of ways. We ask, God, now that you would feed us, or that you would teach us, that you would instruct us by your Spirit through this, your Word, so that we might glorify you better in our lives as those who have come to faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray, God, that you would be pleased to sanctify us further as a result of your word preached. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who is our only hope. Amen. Amen. So as I said, when I, when I read this psalm many months ago in, in my study and reread it, I was reminded of something that the great Jonathan Edwards did when he was a young man. If you don't know who Jonathan Edwards is, Jonathan Edwards lived in the 18th century. He was born in 1703, he died in 1758. Jonathan Edwards, in the span of those years, lived the life probably of about 20 men. He accomplished amazing things for the kingdom of God. He was one of the key leaders of the first great awakening in the United States. He preached the famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He has gone down in history as one of the greatest theologians that has ever been brought up from God's church. Well, he did something when he was 19 years old that I believe more than anything else shows us his unwavering commitment to Christ. That shows us just how serious he took his relationship with the Lord. It shows us just how aware he was of the challenge that it is to walk faithfully with the Lord. He composed what was to be known as his 70 resolutions. Some of them he composed when he was just 19 years old, and I just want to give you a taste of these resolutions by reading a handful of them to you. His first resolution was this. 
resolved. This is how he opened all 70 of his re- uh, resolutions. Resolved, committed. He says, resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good profit and pleasure. <laughs> now, right there is a, a great truth that there is no inconsistency between seeking the glory of God and obtaining pleasure for the Christian. Uh, Because our greatest pleasure as Christians ought to be found only in the glory of God. So so Edward says, I'm going to seek whatever is most to the glory of God as long as I live. He says, in the whole of my duration, without any consideration of the time, whether now or never, so many myriads of ages hence, resolve to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolve to do this whatever difficulties I meet with, how many and how great soever. That was just his first resolution, right? So uh, most of the time, if if you were to write down your New Year's resolution for the year, you may want to throw that away right now. I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, His second resolution was this. He said, resolve to be continually endeavoring to find out some new invention and contravents to promote the aforementioned thing. So in order to find a way to promote the things mentioned in his first resolution. His third, resolved, if ever I shall fall and grow dull so as to neglect to keep any part of these resolutions, to repent of all I can remember when I come to myself again. In other words, when I come to my senses, to be reminded to repent of all that I failed to do is fifth resolution. Resolve never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. Seventh, resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. And then listen to this one, number eight. This just blew me away. Uh, resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody has been so vile as I, and as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God. Uh, that's, that's really profound. Listen to this. What he's resolved to do there is whenever he sees sin in someone else's life, rather than thinking lowly of them, he thinks lowly of himself. Because those sins, whether the actions of them or at least in respect to the root of them, still lay within his heart. So it was an occasion to him to turn to the Lord and say, God, forgive me anytime she saw sin. That's just six of the 70 resolutions. And the reason I bring those up to you is because Psalm 101 is nothing but resolutions. It's nothing but I will, I will, I will, I shall, I shall, I shall, I shall. All Edwards did was take a page right out of David's book. And so this is a psalm of David. And we know David. David wanted to be a godly king, and and he knows that godliness is hard work. Godliness does not come to a Christian without work. That's what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 2, right? To work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work 
First Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, Paul tells Timothy, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue action word, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight action word, the good fight of faith. Take hold action word of the eternal life to which you were called. Those are all action words there. Pursue, fight, flee. These are working words. And David understood that personal holiness always requires effort. Because he, like Edwards, understood that the remnant of sin was powerful and was still a part of his soul. So he needed resolutions. He needed I wills, I shalls. And friends, you and I, we need I wills and I shalls to hold our feet to the fire with respect to our faith in Christ. To our commitment to walking faithfully with Christ. So there are uh, 15 resolutions here. There's eight verses and there's 15 resolutions. There's 14 resolutions in verses 1 through 7. Each verse contains two resolutions. And then there's one resolution in verse 8. And if you got your calculators out, that's 15, right? Uh, All having to do with David's zeal, David's zeal for God and David's drive to be a committed follower of him. So scholars say that David wrote this psalm either right before uh, he took the throne or right after he took the throne. Because David wanted to be a godly king. So we're going to look at these resolutions, not all of them, as I already decided I was not going to be able to squeeze all these in. We're only going to look at the first eight that we find in verses one through four. But I need to tell you something before we dig into even one of these resolutions that's very, very important. David did not compose any of these resolutions as part of an attempt to somehow earn his way to heaven. Okay? Uh, This is not a list of works that you can do to merit God's acceptance of you. David understood, just as every believer in the history of believers understands, that Christ, uh, uh, in Christ, no human being is able to earn his or her way to God on the basis of their own works. Okay? David knew that the natural man is unable to do any works before God that God would look upon and say that in itself is good. David himself wrote Psalm 53, which says that there is no one who does good. The reason for this, of course, is that man is sinful by nature. Man is born a sinner in Adam, so he himself sins. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know this. So David knew that he could not merit or earn acceptance with God, but there was only one way to find acceptance in God, and that is to place his faith in the one who God had promised to send into the world. David was trusting, even in the Old Testament, he was trusting in the seed of the woman who would come and crush the serpent's head from Genesis 3. He was trusting in the offspring of Abraham who would bring blessings upon the nations, Genesis 12. He was trusting in the lion of the tribe of Judah who would rule over his people forever and ever. He was trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, Christ alone makes sinners holy, righteous, and acceptable in the sight of God. And so let's get this out of the way. David did not keep these resolutions perfectly. Not even close. Remember what he did in his own house with Bathsheba? You remember how he failed and and the kingdom took a toll because of his personal sin? Christ and Christ alone is the only one who could ever possibly keep all these resolutions perfectly. And David was not looking to himself for acceptance to God. He was looking outside of himself to the promised deliverer, his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he had received the saving grace of God. 
And because he received it, he therefore committed himself to God with these resolutions. And so we're charged to do the same thing. That's very important before we dig in here. This is not a way to be saved. This is a way to live for those who are saved. So, so let's look at these resolutions. I'm breaking the first eight down into two parts, okay? Uh, they're David's worship and David's walk, okay? Two parts, two categories, David's worship and David's walk. We're looking at David's worship first. He begins exactly where he's supposed to begin. David begins with God and his worship. That's where all of our resolutions ought to begin. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 101 with me. Look what David says. He says, I will sing of loving kindness and justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing praises. Church family, I, I don't care what it is, your list of resolutions, all of them must begin right here. With resolve to give praise, glory, and honor to the one true God. Because all of life is about God. <laughs> It's why we confess over and over again, what is the chief end of man? What's the chief purpose of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So this is where every human resolution must begin and where only those who have been born again by the Spirit can begin. I resolve to worship the Lord. And you'll notice that David focuses on two chief attributes of God, his loving kindness and his justice. Now, if you remember anything from our series in the Psalms, you should know the definition of loving kindness because we've gone over it many, many times, but I'm going to commit it to you again because it is absolutely magnificent. Remember, this word for loving kindness is hesed. It is uh, in the Hebrew, and this is what it means. It is God's loyal, persistent, unchanging, and unwavering commitment to do his chosen people good no matter the cost. Say it again. Is God's loyal, persistent, unchanging, and unwavering commitment to do his chosen people good no matter the cost. So the loving kindness of God, therefore, is one of the most precious attributes of God because of how it impacts and blesses the lives of God's children. It's his loving kindness that compelled him to send into the world for the salvation of his people, his one and only son. We know John 3.16, don't we? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's the loving kindness of God that compelled the son of God to come into the world and to perform that saving work that his father had before the foundation of the world commissioned him to do. Jesus speaking to his disciples in John 15 said, greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. The loving kindness of God is what is applied to the hearts of God's people by his Holy Spirit. Romans 5, 5 says the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So it's the loving kindness of God that moved God the Father to plan our salvation, uh, to send into the world the Savior. It's the loving kindness of God that moved the Savior then to accomplish our salvation by suffering upon the cross. And it's the loving kindness of God that moved the Holy Spirit to apply the Savior's saving work to the hearts of all those who believe and trust in him and receive his salvation. It's the loving kindness of God that continues to move God to hold us and to preserve us. 
It's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8. Who then will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, Paul says. No. Uh, But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want you to know tonight, if you've received Christ and you are resting upon Christ alone as he is offered in the gospel, that there is nothing in the entire world, including your own sin, that can sever you from God's love for you in Christ. Nothing. The only way to love the love of God can be taken away from you is if the love of God is taken away from Christ. It would take God to stop loving his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for him to stop loving you if you belong to Christ. So David says, I'm going to begin to sing of this loving kindness. And church family, so should you. You sing of the loving kindness of God. And I'm so thankful we do. But he says something else here that he's going to sing about. What is it? He says, I'm going to sing of his justice too. This is another attribute of God. Just as potent as his love is his justice. The justice of God is the ability and commitment of God to always do the right thing. The justice of God is the ability and commitment of God to always do the right thing. It is impossible for him not to do the right thing. God always does that which is righteous and just. No one has ever been able to justifiably accuse God of doing something wrong. They've tried. In fact, millions of people throughout the history of the world have accused God of wrongdoing, but every one of them, every time, has been proven wrong. Job in the Old Testament. He tried to accuse God of wrongdoing. In fact, he didn't just try to accuse God of wrongdoing. He did accuse God of wrongdoing. Righteous Job, by the grace of God, someone who had come to love the Lord was, I believe, trusting in that promised seed who was following the Lord. There was no one on the face of the earth as righteous as Job, yet what did God do to Job? Uh, He allowed Satan to attack Job and to take away virtually everything he had. All of his livestock, his servants, all ten of his children, in a span of a couple of hours. Outside the Lord Jesus Christ suffering in this world on the cross, probably nobody has ever suffered more than God's servant Job. At least I don't know of any. He took everything away from Job except his wife and his life. And Job, in the midst of this, was considering his commitment to the Lord and just wasn't jiving with what he was experiencing. Oh God, if you're, if you're a good and righteous God, how can I suffer in such a way? And he began to complain against God. And, and of course, hidden within every complaint against God is an accusation that God has done wrong. That God is unjust that I'm not being treated as I deserve to be treated, and because God is sovereign, therefore he must be responsible. And and you remember how God responded to Job? Uh, God comes to Job in chapter 38 in the whirlwind saying, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? In other words, uh, Job, you've got no idea what you're talking about. 
proceeds, Job, I want you to brace yourself like a man, he says. He says, now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or, or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth and went out from the womb? Job, who told the sea, thus far you shall come but no farther, and here shall your proud wave stop? I mean, surely, Job, you must know since you were there. And for the next several chapters, he asked Job all these questions about creation. And, and the reason he did was to show Job that, that Job knew very little about the natural realm. Therefore, he knew very little about the supernatural realm. Job, if you can't understand with your eyes the things you see, how then do you think you can understand what you can't see? And, and you remember Job's response at the, the end of the book, Job puts his hand over his mouth, and then when he gets the courage to speak, his words were these, I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. I remember a time in seminary, I, I was sitting with one of my professors and somebody asked, it was a small group time after uh, he was doing Job, he's walking through the Old Testament book of Job and he was asked a question by a student, it was Mr. Mr. So-and-so, and he says, what? What does it look like to repent in dust and ashes? Is that some kind of metaphor? What did that look like? He said, no, you get down in the dust and the ashes and you confess your sins against God. That's what it looks like to repent in dust and ashes. I repent in dust and ashes. No one has ever been able to justifiably accuse God of wrongdoing. He always does what's right. Even if you think, God forbid, that he has somehow done something wrong, let me tell you, it's you who are wrong and he's right. And so David says, I'm going to sing about that. I am going to sing not only of your loving kindness, God, but I'm going to sing about your justice. And so we need to sing about the love and justice of God. This is where all our resolutions need to begin. This resolve to worship. Secondly, now I want you to see David's walk. We looked at David's worship, now we're going to look at David's walk. This is in verses 2 through 4, and of course, this walk flows out of the worship. So last year, our theme was worship. This year, our theme is grow, right? Because our walks will always flow from our worship. If you sincerely resolve to worship the Lord and do by his grace in Christ worship the Lord, you will be all the more compelled to live out your life day by day to the glory of God. So what we find here in verses two through four is what we would call the nitty gritty. This is the day to day, the very practical aspects of the Christian life. And he begins this way at the beginning of verse two. He says, I will give heed to the blameless way. That word for give heed means to give attention to, to, to ponder, to take great care to. So what David starts out with saying is not, I'm gonna think about this stuff. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm just going to think about it. He's saying, I'm going to take great care to live this way in accordance with a way that is blameless. 
The way that is blameless simply refers to the way that is godly. It's the holy and pure way. It's the way that Jesus himself speaks of in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 where he says, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who, many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. Only two ways there, folks. Easy way and the hard way. The hard way is the godly way. And you know why that is? It's because fighting against sin is hard. The persecution of the world is hard. The temptations of the evil one are hard. But that's the only way that leads to eternal life. This is the way that David says, take great care to follow. I'm going to do it, David says. I am resolved. Do you notice here, by the way, David's understanding of sanctification? His, his understanding of sanctification is not what we would call a let go and let God sort of thing. Do you see this? There is activity and effort that David applies to his spiritual walk. Friends, when it comes to your sanctification and your spiritual growth, let go and let God is not really the place to use that phrase. Yes, God is going to work it, but you as a Christian are called to be Active in seeking ways where you are seeking your heart, confessing sin and putting to death that sin over and over. Of course, trusting that God's going to work. But it's married together with your own continual seeking after the Lord and looking for ways in which to grow spiritually. There is work involved. Don't just sit back and do nothing and expect somehow you're going to grow into a better Christian. You're going to work. It's hard work. It's difficult. It's grueling often. David understands that it is not only God working in him, but through the strength that God gives him, God infuses into him, he therefore works out himself that sanctification is a dual work. God working in me and me working out what God has worked in. I will, I shall, I'm going to take heed, going to take great care to walk in the godly, godly way, the blameless way, the holy and pure way. That's where he starts when it comes to his walk. But look what else he says. This hurts. He goes on at the end of verse 2 and he says, I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. Uh, this word integrity, it comes from the verb to integrate. The idea is that the godly way is going to be integrated into every area of my life. In other words, there are no off-limit signs in my heart that says to God, keep out. No. It's, it's fully integrated. Every area of my life is going to be dedicated to God. And he begins in the house. Church, genuine holiness proceeds from the heart and is first and foremost practiced in the home. You are what you are in your home. And I say this because Christians oftentimes, they, they act differently outside their home. Let me ask you a question. Do you act in any way differently as a follower of Jesus Christ in your house than you do in God's house? Do you talk differently here than you do in your house? Do you act differently? Do you react differently here than you do in your house? Why do we do that? Why? I'll tell you why. Because we don't fear God as we should. To the degree that you don't fear God, you fear people. 
Uh, you have such a high reverence for people that you care more about looking holy in front of them publicly than acting holy in front of God privately. And David says, it is going to start in my house. Before I can be a godly king over all of Israel, I've got to be a godly man in my own house. Church, are you godly when nobody but your family sees you? Especially when nobody but God sees you? Or is there a difference? Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. He comments on this particular verse in his commentary, the Psalms. He says, listen to these questions. He says, reader, how fares it with your family? Do you sing in the choir and sin in the chamber? Are you a saint abroad and a devil at home? For shame. What we are at home, that we are indeed. He cannot be a good king whose palace is the haunt of vice, nor he a true saint whose habitation is a scene of strife, nor he a faithful minister whose household dreads his appearance at the fireside. The person who acts one way in public and another way in private is nothing but a hypocrite. Do you understand now why David says, I will walk with integrity within my house? Integrity of heart. He felt the pull, didn't he? <laughs> He felt the pull. He knew the challenge. So he made the resolve. Next, verse 3. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. Even more specific here. That word worthless, it means good for nothing. Unprofitable. Doesn't mean those things in the sense of neutrality, but negativity. I am not going to hurt my soul. If, if I set before this thing, if I view this thing, is it going to hurt my soul? If I dwell upon it in my mind, is it going to hurt my soul? If I reach out with my hands and seek to partake of it, is it going to damage my heart? Is it going to hurt my fellowship with the Lord if I pursue this thing? It carries along with it the idea of wickedness and impurity. And let me just tell you, church family, it is true. What a person looks at affects the entirety of their life. What you take into your brain and your soul does impact every area of your life. A profound illustration of this is Ted Bundy. And I guarantee you, you did not come here thinking that you were going to hear about Ted Bundy in church tonight. But for those of you who haven't heard of Ted Bundy, he's one of the most notorious criminals in the history of this country. In a four-year span from 1974 to 1978, he assaulted and murdered at least 30 women in seven states. And on the day before he was executed in this state in 1989, he conducted an interview with Dr. James Dobson. You can actually find that interview online. This man who is going to die in an electric chair in just a few hours, he sits down with Dr. Dobson and he begins answering all these hard questions. And one of the questions uh, had to do with how did it start? What happened? Ted Bundy was, was clear. He says, I, I grew up in a Christian home. I was raised by Christian parents. They took us to church. I had Christian principles instilled in me from the very beginning. I was never abused as a child or by anybody inside or outside the home. It wasn't my upbringing. It wasn't that anything was done to me. If I had to nail it down to one moment, it was that when I was young, when I was 12 years old, I began to view pornography. He said, me and my friends, we'd, we'd walk through the neighborhoods and, and goof off, kick over trash cans and things, and one trash can just happened to have a pornographic magazine in it. And he says, for me, it incited all kinds of things in my heart. 
For me, one thing led to another and produced the man I became. He was clear. He says, listen, I'm not blaming it on that. I take the blame. I did it. But he says, I genuinely believe, apart from pornography, he says that I would never have committed those vile crimes I committed. There's a principle here that's true. What you look at affects the entirety of your life. It's just like our enemy to try his best to convince us that that's not true. That it's not that big a deal, that it won't affect you in any way, that it won't harm your walk with the Lord. Friends, it will. (laughs) David says, I'm not going to set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Continuing on, David says this. I hate the work of those who fall away. I shall not fasten its grip on me. What does that mean? Well, he's talking about apostates here. Those who talk the talk but did not walk the walk. Those who made the good confession but lacked the good conduct. David says, I hate their work. You and I, as lovers of God, are called to hate everything God hates and love everything God loves. Let me tell you something, church family. God hates hypocrisy. He, he hates the lying tongue, the book of Proverbs says. He hates all sin, but certain sins he hates more than other sins. I hate the lying tongue. I hate the person who professes to know me, love me, but whose heart is far from me. So David says, okay, I hate that. As they're falling away because they fall away, I'm not going to let them take me by the coattails and drag me down with them. I'm not going to let them cling to me. I will do whatever I can to prevent them from falling away. But if they fall, they're alone. They will not fasten their grip on me. You may know people like this. People who proclaim to know Christ, but their lives are far from Christ. Do not let them bring you down. Share Christ with them, yes. Share the gospel, live the gospel in front of them. Don't disconnect. But do not let them drag you down. Then lastly, his last resolution is verse 4. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. Now this is just the standard. This is just the law of God. I will know no evil. I'm not going to entertain it. I'm not going to dwell upon it, speak of it, look at it, think of it, hear it, or do it. I will know nothing of evil. A perverse heart shall depart from me. Now listen, this can mean one of two things or both, and I think it's both. It can, it can mean either that David's heart, being still a heart with sin, that I'm not going to have in my own heart perversion. I know that there's a remnant of sin within me, and when I see it, I'm going to repent of it in my own heart. There will be no perversity in me that I know of. I'll fight all that is twisted, curved. That's not straight. That is what the word perversion means. It's the twisted way, the way of the opposite of the blameless way. If it says, I'm not going to let that be in my heart, or it could refer to anybody else who's surrounding him living with a perverse heart. Church family, young people especially, who you hang out with will also have an impact on your life. Uh, Just as what you take into your eyes impacts your life, people impact your life. So we're going to witness to unbelievers. We're going to view unbelievers as our mission field always. I am going to love them and serve them, be hospitable to them, but I will remember that bad company corrupts good character. I want to close with this because, man, this is heavy. And and this is why we had to preface it by saying David's not trusting in his own ability to keep these things as his salvation. But I do want to say this. Where do we find the strength 
to even begin to follow these resolutions. Well, there was a line that I didn't read in this text. Did you see it? It's in the middle of verse two, it's tucked away. The Holy Spirit gives us the answer. Notice what David prays. When will you come to me? Right from the beginning. In a psalm filled with these resolutions that are impossible for the natural man to attain and so difficult for even the spiritual man to attain, he says, oh God, when will you come to me? In other words, when will you help me? When will you help me to do this? This is a prayer for God to come and give David strength, for God to come and be David's source of strength to be able to walk through with these resolutions. Because David knew, just as every believer knows, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Therefore, Jesus says, watch and pray. And that's where we need to close. Oh God, please give me the strength in your son to begin to keep these and to make progress in these holy resolutions. May God help us do this. And may we be active to follow through with these things as well. Let's stand together and go to the Lord in prayer as we close. So, Father in heaven, we ask now that you would give us strength Lord, we know in our own power that these things are impossible. <laughs> they seem daunting. They seem difficult. And we feel sin. We feel, Lord, the, the conviction in our own lives as we fail in these areas. But we ask now that you would give us grace, that you give us help. That by your spirit and union with your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the one who kept these resolutions sinlessly for himself and for all of us who believe in him, you would give us strength to make headway in them ourselves, Father, for your glory and for our good, and for the good of the entire world. Father, I pray that you would write these truths on the tablets of our hearts. May we all be the more serious in light of this psalm uh, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And may we be reminded that we can do this together as your church. That we are not alone in our spiritual walks, but you've given us a gift in your body, your church, to not be a hindrance, but help to us. You've given us your word, you've given us your prayer, and you've given us your church as gifts, Father, to make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. So in the midst of this, we pray that we would be a church that helps one another be more like Jesus. And our encouragements, and our relationships, and our purposeful commitments to keep these holy resolutions. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.